Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you very much for coming to this, the latest in the LSE European Institute Perspectives on Europe series. Today it's a delight to welcome Joaquin Almanier, the Vice President of the European Commission, to talk about competition in the online world, Europe, European and global perspectives. Before we do that, I've got a couple of announcements that I want to make. The first are, I suppose, digital announcements. First, could you become unconnected in the sense that uh, could people please make sure that their mobile phones are turned off, at least on silent mode for the lecture? The second is that this lecture will be on Twitter or being followed on Twitter. The hashtag is LSE Almanir. Now, the second more important function I have uh, is to welcome our guest and to say a couple of words about him. It, a frequent criticism of competition officials is that they're too narrow. Uh, you often hear it said that competition agencies, DG competition, is either too full of lawyers or when they all get thrown out, it's too full of economists or too full of generalists. What is... Uh, a great strength, if I may say, of the current competition commissioner is that can't, certainly can't be said of the person who's in charge of DG competition. Joaquin Alonier is a two-times commissioner. He was first of all commission for, commissioner for economic and monetary affairs, and now his current portfolio until next year is for competition. He was there. He was therefore commissioner when the crisis started. He's now one of the key portfolios to, if you like, get Europe out of the crisis. But even before his time in the com Commission, his professional career was extremely varied. He was for ten years, well, for nine years in government between 1982 and 1991 as a minister in Spain, both for public administration and employment. He was 25 years uh, as a parliamentarian, but he also has a rich professional life beyond politics. He was the founder of the think tank Laboratorio de Alternativas and has held academic posts both in Madrid and at the John F. Kennedy School at Harvard. He will speak for about half an hour. I can think of a few better places to, to talk about competition and the current situation in Europe, and then we will be taking questions. I hope you will join me in welcoming in, warming him, ah, in welcoming him warmly to the stage. Thank you very much. Good evening to everybody. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Professor Chalmers, and to the organizers of this uh, evening conference. I'm uh, delighted to be again at the LSE. It's not the first time that I will give a, a speech here or that I will participate in a debate with uh, professors and uh, students. And it's indeed an institution where I like very much to come back every time I can. And every time I am invited, for sure. So uh, this evening I will uh, talk to you about competition in the online world. And let me start by recalling some uh, small uh, piece of figures. Last week, uh, my colleague, Oli Ren, presented the autumn forecast, economic forecast, released by the European Commission. 
And in those forecasts, we can see that Europe no longer suffers from the double deep recession that affected our economies since the beginning of the crisis. According to those forecasts, you can believe more or less on forecasts, but these figures coincide with other institutions that also publish these kind of exercises. Next year, GDP in Europe will grow 1.1% in the euro area, 1.4% in the EU28, and slightly better figures are expected for 2015. The projections also indicate a gradual recovery of investment, positive figures for job creation, although, and it's a big although, unemployment will still remain above 10% in 2015. And immediately the question, the adequate question is, what can the EU do to sustain the recovery and to increase the growth figures, and not only the short-term growth, but the potential growth of our economies? What measures should be taken to improve expectations and increase opportunities? Of course, I will not elaborate this evening of the full list of policy decisions and strategic options that are on the table of our European institutions and of the national governments and leaders. It would be impossible in only half an hour. But when I started to think about the message for this lecture, I concluded that today I would tell you about one aspect of competition policy enforcement, which is my direct responsibility as a member of the Commission, that has a significant impact on the overall performance of Europe's economy and that, in my view, should help the EU take the road towards a sustainable recovery. I'm referring to the part of our action that keeps competition vibrant in the digital economy. As you know, the European Commission, since the beginning, since the Treaty of Rome, has the responsibility to keep the single market a level playing field for every company operating within our borders. On top of the adoption and implementation of many EU regulations, as a competition authority, the Commission carried out this task analyzing and sanctioning business practices that flout EU antitrust law, cartels, abuses of dominant position. And in addition, we assess proposed mergers so that companies that result from these mergers do not distort competition in the relevant markets. And finally, we make sure that when Europe's governments intervene in the economy by means of subsidies or tax reductions, they do not give a selective advantage to any company or sector that would affect competition conditions or competitive conditions in the internal market. And my point is that in today's juncture, Competition policy enforcement through these instruments can greatly improve the business environment in growth-promising and innovative sectors. And of course, the digital economy is on top of this league of innovation and dynamic sectors. What happens in the online world today has important implications for every sector in our economy. Internet is the infrastructure of the economy of the 21st century. And competition enforcement is a powerful tool to safeguard the proper functioning of the online sector and help it deploy its growth potential at full. 
the basic principles and objectives of competition policy remain the same across sectors. But a number of features are specific to the digital economy. Let me remind some of these specific features that we need to take into account. First is the churning process. Winners in these sectors emerge quickly, but they can disappear just as quickly as they emerged. There are many reports in the press of once popular companies that suddenly find themselves on the verge of failure. Another feature of digital markets is the rapid pace of technological change which brings to market new and more powerful gadgets as well as in material advantages or advances, new services, applications and ecosystems. Third feature, business model and sources of revenue change faster in the digital markets than elsewhere. Think, for instance, of the advertising revolution that search engines, such as Google, and social media, such as Facebook, have made possible with their ability to target ads to the specific needs and preferences of individual users. The benefits of economies of scale are also characteristics of some online services. For instance, the more people use a search engine, the better it gets because engineers need search data to refine their algorithms. In the same fashion, online retailers can obtain larger discounts from suppliers as they grow bigger. And finally, competition analysis of digital cases must also take into account network effects, which are especially strong in these sectors. For instance, the value of a social network such as Facebook, depends to a large extent on how many users the same site has in total. Several of these features make it easier for companies to become gatekeepers in their respective markets than it is in the analogic economy of what we can call brick-and-mortar economy. And by gatekeeper, I mean a specific type of dominant firm which holds a strategic position along the value chain. We can distinguish different types of gatekeepers in the online world. Search engines, patent holders, network operators, and operating systems. As this list uh, makes clear, gatekeeper positions can be reached in several ways such as strong economies of scale, holding a patent, being technically in a position to steer traffic on your network, and network effects. I have to recall that being dominant is not an abuse in itself. The same, being a gatekeeper is not an abuse in itself. But abusing these positions dominance in the market or being gatekeeper and abusing of this position is an infringement. It is only the abuse and not the creation of a dominant position which is, which is forbidden under our EU competition rules. 
In other words, it's perfectly legal for a firm to build up its position on the market through innovation, investment, or marketing. There should be no doubt about it. No firm can be sanctioned just because it's better, more successful, or even luckier than the others. On the other hand, abusing one's position is illegal regardless of how one reaches it. The anti-competitive effect of the abuse is what matters for us. Dominant companies have a special responsibility to ensure that the way they do business does not prevent competition on the merits and does not harm consumers and innovation. Therefore, one of the priorities of competition control is to ensure that dominant firms and gatekeepers do not abuse their positions, especially that they do not prevent other firms for, from entering into a market with new and innovative products and services. Let me give you some examples of cases we are investigating right now around business practices of gatekeepers. The first case I will talk about is Google, which acquired its position as gatekeeper, among other things, because of the strong economies of scale in user information that allow search engines to improve the service they bring to their users. The Google's rivals, such as Yahoo or Bing, have a significantly weaker position in web search. We have uh, made public in many occasions uh, our competition concerns regarding the Google search function. Our concerns in this case is that Google may divert internet traffic through favorable treatment within its web search results to its own specialized web search services as compared to the links of competing services. When we talk about vertical search uh, services or vertical search providers, we are talking on those uh, services specialized in helping users to find restaurants, uh, shops, uh, uh, flights, uh, whatever. Enforcing antitrust rules here means preserving choice so that users can pick their preferred services based on their merits. It also means preserving the incentives to innovate across the board so that users can enjoy new and better services as they appear on the market. Another example I will give you illustrates how companies can acquire gatekeeper status through legal means. I'm referring to two ongoing cases involving certain patents owned by Samsung and Motorola that belongs to Google. The purpose of the patent system is rewarding innovation and guaranteeing a return on the investment that produces it. The system does so by granting the patent holders a temporary exclusive right to use the innovation. This is the general picture, and we can very well understand the rights of the innovator that have created an innovation that has protected it through a patent and that wants to have rights economic rights about the use of this patent. But the patents involved in our cases are of a specific type because they have been submitted to a standard setting body with a commitment to let other companies use them under fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory terms. That in the jargon of competition enforces is 
friend terms, fair, reasonable, and non-discriminatory. These patents are needed by any manufacturer or mob mobile devices to, to make their products interoperable with the second uh, generation or 3G uh, mobile or wireless communication standards. Our competition concerns materialize when the two companies subsequently sought injunctions against a licensee who was willing to accept front terms for the use of these patents. The two cases, the Samsung case and the Motorola case, are at different stage. We recently informed Motorola of our concerns and we are studying the response. As to the Samsung case, the company has offered commitments to allay our concerns and we are currently asking other market players to give us their feedback. Once we will receive these uh, answers, we will then decide whether to accept the commitments offered by the company, by Samsung. Until then, the only remark I can make is that I hope to reach a good solution in this case because it can bring clarity to the patent war that has been rocking the industry for some time. The third and the last example drawn by uh, our ongoing investigations involves gatekeepers in the digital world. Certain telecom operators control the wires through which content is delivered to us. Access providers such as Deutsche Telekom, Orange, Telefonica sit between end users and content providers. We all know that the connection to internet means for us, as end users, it involves a contract with a monthly fee. And content providers typically connect to the internet by purchasing a transit service. In addition to providing access to end users, some telecom operators also offer their own content. This summer, a team from uh, the services under my responsibility, from DigiComp, carried out unannounced inspections at the premises of the three telecoms operators I mentioned. We wanted to make sure that these companies were not abusing a dominant position by degrading the quality or limiting the speed of third-party content, for example, to favor their own content. We are now reviewing the evidence we obtained during the inspections. If an abuse of dominance is confirmed at the end of the investigation, we will have to intervene with a procedure that can uh, be concluded through a negative decision and sanctions. Impairing connectivity at the gateway to incumbents' networks would create unnecessary bottlenecks, undermining the objectives of the digital agenda of the EU and impairing the infrastructure of the knowledge economy. If confirmed, these practices would also raise questions related to the net neutrality debate. Let me uh, close this review of cases in the digital economy with a quick, a quick look at the past decisions that have opened up markets blocked by dominant players. And I will mention the most famous cases in the last uh, decade, the two Microsoft cases in 2004 and 2009. In 2009, four years ago, we accepted Microsoft's commitments that would allow users to choose their preferred browser. Basically, Microsoft had a dominant position in the uh, computer's uh, PC operating system market, 
and Windows at the time was installed on more than 90% of personal computers. This position was achieved thanks to strong network effects. As more people used Windows, more developers wrote applications for it, which in turn made Windows more valuable and so on. Microsoft took advantage of this feedback loop by tying Internet Explorer to Windows and creating an artificial distribution advantage that was not related to the merits of this browser. The commitment offered by the company allowed users to choose which web browser they wanted to have as a preferred browser in the computer. This improved uh, people's experience of, on the Internet and also acted as an incentive for other companies to innovate and offer other browsers. In the other case involving Microsoft back in 2004, we did not accept commitments. Instead, we adopted what we call a prohibition decision and fined the company for around 500 million euros. In that decision, we found that Microsoft had leveraged its near monopoly in the market for PC operating systems onto the markets for workgroup, server operating systems, and media players. In all these cases, the new ones that we are still investigating, or the old ones, our main objective is protecting consumers and promoting innovation and choice, not protecting competitors. And this point is uh, very important. The antitrust uh, enforcement has not as a main purpose, as a purpose, to protect the competitors that can complain or can uh, write to us saying that the the market position of its competitor is very strong. Competition is not about uh, protecting competitors, it's about protecting users and consumers and to promote investment and innovation. These examples of gatekeeper positions show the existence of general barriers to entry which apply to all businesses regardless of whether they started in Silicon Valley in a garage or in Seoul or in Stockholm or wherever. Now I go to the second part of the presentation where I would like to ask a few key questions about the relationship between the digital sector and our uh, competitiveness in Europe. There is one question that uh, has been uh, presented in many occasions. Why has the digital economy failed to develop in Europe as it has in other parts of the world? Another question that we can uh, hear very often, can such factors as lower incentives, fragmented markets in Europe, or lack of funding account for this state of affairs? Or how can regulatory efforts and competition policy cooperate to create the best possible environment for our digital entrepreneurs in Europe? The European Union has been preoccupied with riding the wave of the digital revolution at least since the first Lisbon Agenda that was launched in the year 2000. It's true that the success of this Lisbon Agenda was not very high, but the concerns were there. The same goals and the same concerns regarding our competitiveness were confirmed in the present uh, strategy for growth in Europe, the so-called Europe 2020 strategy. Within this uh, Europe 2020 strategy, that is uh, uh, 
that was decided uh, in 2010, the so-called Digital Agenda for Europe is one of its priority initiatives. The overall aims of the Digital Agenda include the delivery of innovative digital services through fast and ultra-fast internet and interoperable connections or applications, interoperable applications. But who will deliver these digital services? Today, we observe very few European companies among the giants of Internet. In fact, we see many American giants, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, or Asian winners like Samsung, who are active across Europe. And in some occasions, that have in Europe a higher market, market share than in the US. And this signals a sharp contrast with our telecom operators. The telecom market includes over 1,000 fixed operators and several hundred mobile operators in Europe. Although many of them are ultimately controlled by a handful of large telecom groups, we serve a big percentage of the European users and consumers, these operators still run their activities separately in each member state and do not operate as pan-European players. Why is that? I can see three possible reasons. The first has to do with possible differences in the approaches to antitrust enforcement followed here or in the US. Between the EU and the US, we have a general agreement on the fundamental objectives of antitrust laws and policies. That is, our purpose is to ensure consumer welfare in terms of price, quality, innovation, and choice. In addition, we both, the Americans and the Europeans, as competition policy enforcement, we both believe that the sound analysis based on economic effects is crucial. Some aspects of our abuse of dominance analysis are specific here in Europe. For instance, exploitative practices such as unfair or excessive pricing are covered by the Article 1 or 2 of the EU Treaty, but not by Section 2 of the Sherman Act, which set out the rules for this kind of infringement in the US. Even though the number of cases oriented towards the analysis of uh, possible practices of exploitative pricing has been relatively modest, the mere fact that authorities may intervene directly against excessive prices can have an impact on the company's incentives to invest. If firms anticipate that the competition authority is ready to cap their prices when they are successful and earn high profits, their incentive to invest and innovate may be affected. Of course, there is a fine line here. In certain cases, it's right for a competition authority to intervene if prices are excessive and barriers to entry high. In addition, competition enforcement in this area should be complemented by regulatory intervention to lower barriers to entry and allow more competitors to come into the market and drive innovation. We have many instances, and in particular in this digital world, where the regulation and competition services of the Commission join forces to allow innovation to thrive. In any case, when looking at the detailed results 
of uh, the antitrust enforcement here and in the U.S., I conclude that uh, competition enforcement is not the reason why there are not European companies among the so-called over-the-top players. Nor we will we succeed in this domain in Europe, allowing regulatory holidays or going backwards to a situation where the incumbents, in many cases the old state monopolies, will receive again a special treatment from the public authorities. Let's think about the two other questions I mentioned a minute ago. First of all, let's uh, think a little bit about the fragmentation of national markets. I can think that uh, one of the reasons why there are so few European uh, champions in the digital industry is the fragmentation of our internal market. Today, Europe does not have an integrated single digital or telecoms market. And this fragmentation makes it difficult for national companies in Europe to achieve a scale and therefore scale benefits. Think for a minute in the small startup in the US. They can start in a garage, but this small firm can expand to the entire US without major regulatory obstacles and can reach, without barriers, 300 million users. In contrast, in Europe, a small company started starting in a single member state would need to check compliance with national laws and not only with the EU regulations and will face extra administrative burden before being able to gradually increase its footprint across Europe. We have in Europe, in our single market, 500 million potential consumers of digital services, but it is a real struggle to reach them beyond national borders. I have no doubt that the lack of a single digital and telecom market constrains growth of European companies. And this is particularly true in the internet area. Currently, to protect an invention in the 28 member states of the EU, one must trans translate and validate a patent country by country. The EU has been trying for years to address the fragmentation issue, but no results or solutions have been available until now. Fortunately, a patent reform was adopted less than a year ago, and the initiative is designed to create hopefully, as soon as possible, an EU unified patent office. Also, the Commission has launched the License for Europe initiative. Together with the industry, the aim is to bring copyright and licensing up to date for today's digital world. In September this year, we adopted the regulatory package which aims at achieving a single telecoms market by harmonizing rules in national markets. However, this is not the end of the journey. Even if all our initiatives are adopted soon and start to be implemented, we will still have 28 national telecom regulators and we will still have national allocation of a spectrum. And the third and final reason I will give you to, to explain or to try to explain why we have special difficulties for a success in the internet world is the mismatch between the demand and supply of funding for startups. In Europe, 
roughly 80% of financing of companies comes through the banking system. In the US, precisely the opposite is the case. Private investors, not banks, provide the big share of corporate finance. And particularly in the current economic situation in Europe, bank funding is limited. And small companies do not have access to capital markets through equity or bonds insurance issuance. The scarcity of alternative sources of finance, apart from banks, means that many small businesses cannot find investors for their projects. Our venture capital market is still very uh, small and is not well developed. But not only the supply of funding appears to be less advanced, we also observe problems from the demand side. Young enterprises in Europe must learn how to draw up a sound business plan to search for external funding. Some are hesitant as they must share control with an outside investor who usually can have a say in company decisions. And here the role of the EU competition policy is to accompany policy efforts with an adequate design of a state aid control framework. And this is why, as part of our overall modernization of the state aid uh, framework, we are updating our state aid guidelines to support small and medium-sized enterprises in their efforts to access risk capital. These guidelines specify the cases in which EU governments can create incentives for private players to invest in innovative SMEs. These efforts to improve the funding situation for SMEs are complemented by regulatory actions to create an internal market for venture capital funds. Let me now conclude. I've tried to elaborate in a short uh, period of time the nexus between EU competition policy and the digital industry. In closing, I would just like to repeat that the work that competition authorities carry out in these sectors is of paramount importance because the proper functioning of the markets in the online world can have a fallout in the performance of many other sectors. At the end of the day, this is a challenge of the knowledge era. Growth, innovation and competitiveness in Europe are crucially dependent on our ability to stay in the digital economy race. We must trace better pathways in the single market that our startups can follow to become European champions and world leaders. This was one of the priorities of the first Lisbon strategy back at the start of this century, and unfortunately it didn't materialize. But this should only reinforce our determination to turn the EU digital agenda launched three years ago into a success. Public policies at national and European level should be geared towards this goal, including regulatory efforts and including, of course, competition policy. We must continue to lower barriers to entry. We must harmonize national markets to compete or to, com to complete the single market, especially in the most growth-promising industries. We must address funding problems so that the next success stories of the digital economy are European stories. Thank you.
Thank you very much for that. It was wonderful. We have quite a bit of time for questions. Uh, we will take questions in groups of three. If questioners could please identify themselves as well. Um, we should have a roving mic somewhere, yes. Gentleman there. Hello. Um, thank you very much. It was a very interesting lecture. Um, my name's Mike Hopes. I'm just in off the street, basically, a member of the public. Um, this is slightly in, on a different slant, but my understanding is that the, the competition is... The, the, the regulatory basis for competition is that a firm has 30% of the market, and do you feel that that is too high to really be called competition? I mean, if that's, you know, if that's competition, what's oligopoly? I think the question was about the thresholds for the level of market dominance, wasn't it? Yeah, okay. Now. More, more, any more questions? Lord Gisnes. It's just to your left. Uh, yeah, thank you very much for your speech. I much enjoyed it. Um, I don't know if you'd like to comment on it, but I wonder if you could say something about, if you feel like it, about what to me is one of the biggest transformations in the digital world, which is the advent of digital production. And I've been tracing that in quite a lot of detail in stuff I've been writing, not just 3D printers, but well beyond 3D printers. Now we have actually 4D printers, which the, um, um, the MIT Media Lab are developing. To me, you know, this is one of the biggest changes going on uh, in the global economy because it, it could really transform both uh, manufacture and the service industries. And, um, you know, the MIT lab are, are talking of creating a plane that would fly directly out of the computer and regard that as not simply a utopian project but a possible one within the next 10 years. You know, this produces a relocalization of production. It's directly relevant to uh, offshoring. It has so many implications, I think, for the future. So if you feel like commenting on that anyway, it would be interesting to hear what you would say about it. And if you could just, just to the, yes, exactly, the lady there. And thank you very much, Commissioner, for a fantastic speech. Um, I've got a question about um, the effects-based uh, approach to economics, which obviously competition law and competition policy um, follows. When it comes to efficiencies, obviously there's a difference between dynamic efficiencies and static efficiencies. And we've seen DG Comp take this into account in investigations that it's launched in the online sphere. I'm interested in getting your views on this in connection with consolidation of mobile operators, not just on a pan-European basis, which is definitely within the Commission's policy imperative going forward, but also within a single <coughs> member state. Thank you. Commissioner. Yes. Well, if I understood well the, the first question that I, I didn't hear perfectly well, but uh, was about thresholds for, for dominance, and I link with the first part of your, of your uh, question on the effects-based approach. And I mentioned in passing the effects-based, because this was a kind of revolution, not as big as a 3 and 4D uh, <laughs> uh, manufacturing, but uh, competition policy enforcement was based on legal rules and principles and continues to be based on legal rules, but was not 
using economic analysis uh, until in Europe, until the uh, reforms that took place in 2004. But since 2004, we have made a big effort to uh, combine economic analysis, what are the effects of uh, the problems that we are observing in the, in the market, with uh, the legal principles that we need to, to respect. This is the reason why, in every case of uh, 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 antitrust, abuse of dominance, or in uh, any merger, we need to think and to analyze what is the relevant market, and from time to time, the relevant market that uh, five or ten years ago was national is uh, uh, transformed into a European or a global market. It depends on the way this market functions. And the same, some uh, uh, considerations of uh, uh, market position or market power can change depending not only on market shares, but in other circumstances that need to be analyzed. What we do in some of our uh, competition policy regulations and uh, guidelines and so on is in some cases to define a threshold below which we uh, block exempt the uh, market share uh, as, a, as a anticipating that we don't consider that someone who is uh, below a certain market share can abuse of their, of their position in the market. And we uh, consider in uh, the vertical uh, uh, guidelines, or vertical integration guidelines, or in horizontal guidelines, or in some other cases, if the market share of the participants in a particular uh, agreement or uh, of those who are integrated vertically are not above X percent, we consider that it's impossible to have uh, the possibility to, to make abuses. But uh, above these thresholds, we need to look at how the real uh, uh, functioning of this market show us what is going on, and we don't base our analysis only in market shares, and in some occasions we don't base at all our analysis in market uh, shares. Linking with the second part of your question, and afterwards I, I go to the Tony Giddens uh, considerations. Uh, efficiencies is also part of uh, our economic analysis. But uh, efficiencies needs to be argued by the parties. <laughs> we cannot invent the efficiencies of a proposed merger. So if uh, two parties want to merge, they try to justify the advantages of this uh, new entity and try to eliminate all of, of our concerns for the possibility to reduce competition because of the merger. And one way to convince us that the merger will not imply uh, significant impediments for effective competition, that is the definition of our uh, way to consider a merger, is, well, don't look only at the aggregate size in the relevant market of the merged entity, look also at the efficiencies. Our final uh, uh, objective is to uh, improve the possibility of choice of, uh, of uh, consumers or innovation. In some occasions, this merger can bring efficiencies that are higher than the problems they create. This is the theory, and we fully uh, uh, buy this uh, theory, and uh, 
our economists in the chief economist team and the economists uh, embedded in the in the case teams in the DG takes uh, this into account and was not the case until uh, 2004 but now when we share uh, our ideas and we uh, share our analysis with our uh, US friends we have the same approach on this the problem is uh, comes when uh, in a particular case the parties says what we will bring efficiencies, static or dynamic, but they don't demonstrate these efficiencies. And I can tell you that usually the parties, when the merger is about uh, big companies, the parties have much more economists, every one of them, than the total number of our economists for all the cases that we are dealing the same day. But had not been uh, very usual that the arguments arguing in favor of efficiencies have been solid enough to convince our, our people, our analysis. But uh, it's, a, it's a, a real issue, and I would like to have a better input from the parties uh, that want to merge and to have a better discussion on efficiencies in some cases where uh, this couldn't be demonstrated. And the, <clears throat> the question of this uh, new uh, revolution of big transformation, I cannot foresee what will happen. But I, as an intuition, I tend to think that this will change a lot of things. As the uh, Internet is changing a lot of things, as in some other, some other uh, innovation advantage. From the competition point of view, of course, we have not yet received a single case. <laughs> this and competition needs to deal with uh, exposed cases. We cannot anticipate what will happen in one market if there will be abuses of dominance or if uh, the participants in the new market will be tempted uh, to organize a cartel. I hope not. But we need to receive uh, information, and this information obliges us, as a competition enforcement, to act exposed always. I have not a clear analysis, a detailed analysis, if these risks of some digital activities that I described very quickly, for instance, network effects. I don't know if it will come uh, in these uh, uh, new activities. In Internet, it's obvious that these uh, network effects uh, exist. And uh, we need to be careful distinguishing the successes, the competition on the merits, the size won because of the uh, efficiency, the uh, innovation, the creativity, and the abuse of this position against the new entrants, against the, the competitors, even if the competitors are very small. And at the end, we need to think the users, how this uh, scale, how this uh, network effect can have some inconveniences, but will benefit users, yes or not, is uh, our task. And I conclude with the telecoms uh, <laughs> merger. We have uh, right now two cases, and probably we will have a third one. Mergers that, as the market is fragmented, the mobile phone in particular, are national markets. The telecom operators tell us we need more scale to allocate resources for the big investments in, in, the, in the networks of uh, new generation networks and all this fiber and so on, and at the same time, they prefer to remain national and they prefer to 
win size through national mergers. But the problem is that if the market continues to be national, the impediments for effective competition of uh, some mergers are evident. How they can justify efficiencies if we know that in this sector the strong position in the market is a strong temptation to increase prices and to squeeze competitors. It's, it's very difficult to, to justify this. In some occasions, the last one in, in Austria, when uh, uh, two of the four mobile operators merged, we clarify and we, we uh, authorize the merger, but in exchange we asked uh, for some uh, clear-cut remedies, structural remedies, for instance, to uh, give up part of the spectrum they owned to allow the telecom regulator of Austria to auction for the possibility of uh, the entrance of a new mobile operator or to create uh, a better environment for uh, virtual mobile operators to compete with the big virtual operators. So we have uh, techniques that had been explored in, the, in previous cases. Gentlemen over there. There's two, but the one nearest to me. No, just uh, you've just passed him. To you. Uh, thank you, Commissioner, for the fantastic lecture today. Um, the question I have is, is sort of coming from the title of the lecture and the subjects that you covered. Um, what I'm trying to understand is how does the EU Commission, the Competition Commission, plan to deal with uh, issues that are likely to arise in the extraterritorial application of EU competition laws on the online or the digital space? And uh, is, is there a plan to resolve any extraterritoriality problems that may come up? Gentlemen over there. Just there, yes. Uh, hi. Since we're on the topic of the online world, I'm wondering if you had any thoughts on the implications of the new online currency, Bitcoin? <laughs> okay. <laughs> and gentlemen, right at the very back in the blue, uh, yes. Yes, to the, in the blue sweater. Hopefully you're allowed to answer my question. Where do you stand on Google and the way they're getting away with anti-piracy laws that are just flagrantly breaking, including my own? Are you allowed to comment on Google? Or what do you think of privacy laws in general and how do you think you could implement them without sort of being libelous? Okay, Commissioner, so it's all yours. <laughs> well, I said, uh, the first question I said, uh, the principles, the legislation uh, of competition policy enforcement is the same for all the sectors, and no, ex no exceptions. The way to implement these principles and these rules to every particular situation, not even sectors, but every particular case, needs to be adapted to the real elements that we are uh, dealing with. What uh, we still uh, need in the online world from the competition policy enforcement uh, point of view is to adopt more decisions, to create precedents, and to check the way we will decide with the jurisprudence of the Court of Justice. That is the only instance that can correct or 
modify our decisions in competition uh, in the competition domain. We hope that uh, we will succeed in uh, getting the support of the Court of Justice to our to our uh, decisions. In the past, we have been successful in some important decisions. Microsoft is uh, one case, probably the most important one so far. Uh, now we have to decide on Google. It would be a very, very important case, not only because of uh, the reactions that our decision will uh, trigger in many areas. Every, everybody uses every day, many times uh, a day, uh, Google. Many people want to succeed uh, in using uh, Google as a platform to sell uh, services or to provide uh, services. And this will be very important because in some other areas, even in part of the digital world, some regulations exist. So the rules of the, of the game have been at least partially determined by regulation. Good or bad, it depends, but uh, by regulation. In the case of uh, Google, for instance, or in the case of the standard essential patents and the link between the holders of the patents and the licensees, there are no regulations available. We will produce, through our decisions, the first uh, proxy of a regulation. Maybe regulation will not be needed. And in a few years' time, the Court of Justice, if they receive in appeal some complaints against our decision, they will confirm or, or modify. But, uh, well, it's a creative thing, using the same uh, articles of the treaty and using the same uh, instruments than in all, all the other sectors. Bitcoin. <clears throat> I hope I will not receive a case on, on Bitcoin because I, I think... The answer uh, will be, this is a question of uh, central bankers that should be worried that <laughs> they have competition outside the legal framework. Uh, I hope uh, that this will not uh, be transformed into a competition case. I don't see how from the competition legal uh, framework and from the competition economic analysis we can deal with this case. I think... Uh, this is a one, one innovative uh, uh, way to create an alternative uh, payment system. But probably, uh, if this continues to exist and they, uh, this uh, spreads, at one moment, someone will discover what uh, nations discovered in the past, that uh, a currency will require at least one central bank a monetary policy, an interest rate, and some kind of rules. Maybe, but uh, I don't know. Uh, the question was uh, regarding Google. No, the, what, what you wanted to, to, to talk about Google? Anti-privacy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is not part of a competition. Policy. It's uh, the same uh, company, but uh, the same companies, but a different, a different issue. I think it's an extremely relevant issue, and I feel it uh, not only as a politician or as a European Commission. I feel as as a person. Hmm? 
if uh, Chancellor Merkel doesn't like to be uh, uh, heard when she speaks on the phone, I don't want my personal data to be used uh, without my consent. And th this uh, is a big, a big issue because of the huge amount of, of data and the huge uh, uh, list of possibilities to use and to make money and to pursue other purposes with my data. The only link with competition policy is the possibility to monetize these databases. Until now, we had one case that uh, deals with uh, data obtained uh, through uh, uh, internet. Uh, from the competition point of view, was a double-click uh, case. It was a small and partial one. I'm sure, as, uh, the same as I am not sure that if one day Bitcoin will arrive to digital competition <laughs> to be analyzed, I'm sure that the market of uh, private data obtained without the consent of the citizens will be one day uh, a question to be analyzed by, by competition authority. But so far, we only had this uh, double-click case was, was not a big one. Yeah. Can I just, before I just take some more questions, can I just press you on that last point? Could you ever imagine a situation where abuse of data protection laws by an internet giant that held a monopoly could be uh, an abuse under EU competition law? Like, I'm thinking that on, in supermarkets, if I don't like the way they handle my information when I use my supermarket card, it's very easy for me to go to uh, another supermarket. It's not so easy for people with Google, so I wondered... Well, uh, if it's only a question of uh, privacy, will not be a competition uh, policy issue. If it's a question of uh, monetizing the ownership okay. or the availability of private data, it will be a question of, uh, okay. of competition. Okay, the gentleman there, you can... Yeah, thank you for your speech. You already touched on patents in your speech, and uh, my question is kind of related to that. Um, it's about the development. You can see that, that enterprises tend to get a patent on literally everything. And to clarify my question, i give you an example. I talked to um, an employee of a startup company. He, they are doing a local transportation app. It's called CityMapper. And he told me, for an app developer, it's not allowed to give you the information in how many minutes the bus is arriving because some company has a patent on it. So what these companies do is they give you the meters when the bus comes. So my question is, therefore, is the European Union aware of the problem? Do you see it as a kind of a levy on innovation? And do you take steps to prevent that? Thanks. Yeah, hi. Um, thanks very much for the speech. I found it uh, very good. Um, I have a question on uh, these big telecom uh, companies. How important going forward will, be, uh, will the use of profitability analysis be going forward in terms of analyzing whether companies have made excess profits? Uh, 
because there's a, like a lack of competitiveness within the market. And then also the challenges that the EU will face in terms of pricing structures and analyzing the costing structures of each uh, company given, given the nature of telecom pricing, given bundling and between broadband, phone, uh, those kind of sort of issues. So I just wonder whether you could speak to that. Um, just one more. The, la the lady over there. Thank you for the lecture. Um, two brief questions, one um, on cooperation. Uh, so if every country and almost every university wants to develop its own IT cluster or its own biotech cluster, uh, how is Europe going to be able to compete with the US economies of scale ever, like EU policy has anything to do with that? And also, um, as a Spaniard, sorry, I really feel uh, sorry for this, but I really feel compelled to ask. So, uh, some weeks ago, Dr. Solana was here in this very theater, and he was saying that if Catalonia declared its independence, it would be a region of the European Union anyway. But I think, like a couple of days ago in Spain, you were saying exactly the opposite thing. So again, <laughs> like on also like co cooperation in the European Union and common position, like mm -hmm. how do you see that? Thank you. Commissioner. Yeah. Okay. The patent issue, the, the conditions under which one invention, one uh, uh, product of uh, creativity has the right to be protected through a patent is a very important issue for the functioning of, a, of the economy, for the creation of conditions for innovation, for many reasons. As I said in the speech, for years and years, the European Union has not been able to unify, to harmonize the patent regulations and every national patent office were using different criteria and uh, if one uh, uh, inventor, one uh, uh, innovator wanted to get a patent to be used throughout uh, Europe needs to go to every single national patent office. Now the EU patent office will be created after uh, an agreement that, by the way, almost all member states of the Union subscribed and endorsed, with the exception of my own country and Italy, that uh, because of uh, very weird uh, reasons, because <coughs> linguistic reasons, I think it's a pity that uh, not the 28 are, are there. But in any case, the existence of this EU patent office for sure will be a very uh, useful way to unify uh, criteria on what should be protected by a patent. But what will be this criteria is another thing. And uh, we live in the, between two different uh, perspectives. On the one hand, those who think, and they have good arguments, that the protection of a patent should be guaranteed clearly in many cases, so as to encourage innovation and to protect the rights of the innovator as an incentive for innovation, for creativity. But on the other hand, it's true that an abuse 
from the point of view of the holder of the patent of these rights can distort competition. And not only when the patent is included in a standard. That is a clear case that we are analyzing in these three cases and uh, probably in some more that are in the pipeline. But even if a patent is not included in the standard, an abuse from the holder will, in my view, create more inconveniences than advantages. So I, I, I agree with this, uh, with this uh, uh, need to establish rational limits to the protection that a patent can give to the innovator. Uh, the legislation probably should be improved, among other things, because, and this is uh, another issue that <laughs> I will not elaborate today, but the digital world changes the concept of protection of intellectual property rights. And this will uh, need to be taken into account in the big uh, uh, discussion on how to modernize and to update the intellectual property rights uh, legislation, including uh, patent legislation. I, I, I agree, it's a, it's a very important issue. The second thing, uh, portability, pricing, and all this. Well, now we have uh, national markets. The regulators are national. There is a body to coordinate uh, what the national regulators uh, are doing, but uh, many of these uh, decisions on pricing and, uh, and portability, if I am not wrong, they continue to be submitted to the national regulators' criterion, and there are very different treatments within the same internal market on, uh, on these issues. In my view, we need to advance as much as possible and as quickly as possible to a single regulator in Europe and to a single allocation of a spectrum at the European level. These are two conditions that will help us to advance. These are not the only ones, but they are very important uh, steps forward towards a, a single market in Europe for telecoms that is very important because this argument of the, of the big operators is right when they say we need to invest a lot and we need a, a, a market that will allow us to get uh, uh, revenues and resources to finance these investments. But what they are not adding is that if you want to have a dimension and if you want to be relevant players in this EU market for 500 million users, you need to put pressure to those that continues to support national regulation, national barriers, national allocation of a spectrum, that uh, if you talk with a telecom operator, they will say, these are the governments. If you talk with the governments, they will say, our position is because the telecom uh, operators uh, established here are putting pressure on us. And we need to break this uh, vicious circle. And the last thing, uh, what said Javier Solana here? <laughs> no, I, I uh, am a very good friend of, of him. And I, I tend to think that we share the same view on, uh, on the Catalonian issue. On the one hand, with the territorial tension in Spain, uh, we, uh, it's obvious the need to, to, 
organize as quickly as possible a dialogue, a political dialogue, a social dialogue, uh, to try to better understand the concerns and the reasons why the tensions are uh, high at this moment, and to try to find solutions through dialogue, through uh, consensus if possible, and to try to uh, improve seriously and quickly the relationship between Catalonia and the rest of Spain. But in the case of uh, these uh, arguments uh, saying, well, and we happen if Catalonia is independent, what will happen regarding Europe, the European Union? I have to say, first of all, that I don't think we will see this hypothesis to be materialized. That it's, I cannot imagine that uh, this will be the result. You know, there are tensions, there are difficulties, uh, but uh, as uh, we did in the past, and we were there when we did the last time uh, a good agreement, was the constitutional agreement and the adoption of the Estatuto de Catalunya and all this, we can uh, and we should and we must uh, find uh, again a solution. But uh, in theory, let's uh, uh, talk about uh, Scotland, for instance. <laughs> If uh, the referendum uh, next year regarding uh, Scotland could have a result in favour of the independence, that I don't believe it, but uh, let's uh, imagine for one moment that this referendum that is, uh, will take place for sure uh, next year, if the result would be that the Scottish uh, voters will uh, prefer to uh, be independent, immediately Scotland will not be a member of uh, the EU, will be a territory outside the EU. This is, a, this is the reality, this is a, these are the rules of the game, and this has been confirmed again and again, even if uh, those who put the question, sometimes they don't want to listen the answer to the question. So can I just ask you a question on that, actually, again? Mm -hmm. Um, the Court of Justice, which I assume the, has said that EU citizenship can't be stripped of EU citizens. Well, they've said that very clearly in the Zambrano case. So would that mean that Scottish nationals would be stripped of their citizenship, uh, of EU citizenship? Uh, this is uh, a good question for the Court of Justice. OK. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd better get back to the online economy. The uh, <laughs> lady at the back there. Um, I have uh, two quick questions, and one is, do you see or foresee any downside in engaging with, in these type of commitment discussions with dominant players like Google in terms of that process? And then uh, the second related to this overall subject is I understand that the CSAC case was recently overturned the copyright case for the publishers, and uh, is, is there any learning or views about how that was conducted uh, that you could share, given that the Commission's decision was overturned? Okay. Gen gentlemen uh, uh, up there. A bit further. I'm 
the Ian Stewart from Deloitte. Um, just thinking back to the, the reasons you list for the possible failure of Europe to develop major players, um, in the major, major digital players like Facebook and Google, I mean, do, do you think another possible reason is that um, Europe appears to lag quite low down international league tables of um, universities and um, strength in, in, in research, I mean, with some conspicuous um, exceptions, of course? Um, including the LSE. Um, but uh, generally, continental institutions don't rank proportionately where you would expect them to be uh, with, uh, when you consider the wealth of, of Europe. I'm sorry for doing this to you, for just the gentleman right down at the front. <laughs> Thanks very much. It's Daniel Wilson from the BBC, um, but from the policy bit, not uh, a road journalist. Um, you mentioned the net neutrality propose, proposals um, from the Commission. I was wondering if you could expand on how those will complement the kind of competition cases you mentioned, um, both in terms of policy and the objectives, the, the positive ma uh, market outcomes you're trying to achieve, but also in terms of the timing. Yeah. Commissioner, please. Well, first of all, the question of uh, what is better to conclude an abuse of dominance investigation with a prohibition decision to say the infringer cease and desist and to put a fine or to choose the alternative route that is to try to get from the infringer commitments to eliminate our concerns and if these commitments proposed by the infringer are considered uh, adequate after negotiation, after consultations, uh, market tests, etc., to adopt the decision, transforming these commitments into legally binding uh, commitments and solving the problem that we raised when we opened the investigation. We use both routes, depending on the cases. In general, if uh, I can define uh, a rule, but uh, without an obligation to follow this rule in all the cases, I can say, in cases when we are dealing with new problems, and in cases where our decision, thanks to the commitments, can not only solve the problems of the past, but create the adequate uh, guidance to avoid uh, new problems in the future, I prefer the route of commitments. But the, if, even if I prefer the route of commitments, if the party that is being investigated is not offering what I would like to see on the table, I cannot adopt uh, a decision on commitment. But if the proposals are adequate, if the reactions of the stakeholders confirm this, if uh, I consider that this is the best uh, option, and in, on top of this, if I can conclude the investigation sooner, I prefer this route. In other cases, well, because of the impossibility to find remedies to what happened in the past, because of the lack of interest of any kind of commitments vis-a-vis -vis the future, 
or because the lack of will of the infringer, we adopt a prohibition decision, we put a fine, and uh, this is the, the way we conclude. Taking the, the example of Microsoft, in the first Microsoft case, we impose a fine. In the second Microsoft case, the Internet uh, Explorer, the browser, we got commitments. But after we got commitments in 2009, because Microsoft didn't respect the commitments they have proposed to us, I imposed a fine, and not a small one. So, so it depends on the, on, the, on the cases. Uh, universities, is the role of the universities relevant? Of course it's, it's relevant, but not only for the lack of big uh, players in this uh, internet world. It's relevant for many other uh, failures or constraints or limitations that our economies and our societies have. In, in my view, uh, I can agree with some uh, voices saying, well, why you continue to have these kind of responsibilities or competences in some areas that are too nitty-gritty to be dealt uh, from Brussels, and why you don't start uh, some kind of devolution of some competences? Okay, let's discuss. Why not? depends on what are the areas. But if I would like one area to be reinforced as an EU competence in Europe would be some capacities to organize some excellence centers, university and research at the EU level. I think we, every country has strong difficulties to have the size to have global players in this market of knowledge, in this market of, uh, of universities, of scientific research. The only one who can compete is this country, on the one hand because of the size, and the second one that is uh, very relevant because of the language. Any other country in Europe with some uh, size or dimension that has not English as an official language is... Uh, has a serious, serious uh, difficulty to compete in this, uh, in this league. And I, I think it's, a, it's very important, but not only in this, uh, in this domain. And then neutrality, well, it's a discussion. <laughs> we have in, we introduced in the, in the telecom package that uh, Nelly Cruz presented uh, to the Parliament and the Council, we have introduced some definition of how we understand net neutrality, and we know that the reactions will be uh, uh, pluralistic, to say the least. How I see net neutrality? Well, everybody should have equal conditions to get access to the net. I, I was referring to this investigation that we started against three big uh, telecom operators because we presume we cannot still advance if we will have formal objections to this, but we presume, we, our intuition says that they can be benefiting their own content against the content of the others. But if there is the same kind of uh, service, the same kind of, uh, of uh, quality of the, of the net, they cannot do so. This is a, a serious restriction of uh, competition, and we will intervene. If we confirm this discrimination, we will intervene. 
Another thing that sometimes is also considered net neutrality, but in, in this case, I don't consider this, is that if you have the possibility to offer different uh, qualities of the net, uh, capacity to uh, 3 megabytes, 10 megabytes, uh, 100 megabytes, and so on, and you can offer different levels, and there are some users, or potential users, that are ready to pay a higher price to have the better uh, quality, the higher speed, and so on. And many other users, they don't need these uh, uh, 100 megabytes, and they prefer to pay less and to have uh, another speed that is good for their uh, request to the net. Why someone can say, no, no, it's not possible, you need to offer to everybody the same uh, speed, the maximum speed uh, possible. I, I don't think this is logic. I think it's, it's uh, wise to consider that uh, uh, a better quality service for those who need it or for those who demand it can have a higher price. Commissioner, it's a tribute to the interest of the subject and the richness of your talk. We've got a lot of questions still. Unfortunately, we've already overrun a bit. Uh, I have a couple of requests. Please, uh, as, a, as a thank you and a courtesy to the Commissioner, we're furthest away from the door, so it means if everyone leaves quickly, we're last out. So if you just let him uh, go a bit before everyone else goes, that would be, that would be fantastic. Secondly, I'd like to thank the stewards for the marvellous job they've done. But most importantly, I'd really like to thank you, Commissioner, for a wonderful hour and a half you've, and the way you've handled the questions and the manner of your talk. Thank you.